Turn your Bibles, we're going to start in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And as you're turning there, just have some thoughts to ponder. I don't know if, if you've noticed, but it is the season of spiders. Amen? I don't know about you, but last week I did a, or yesterday, I did a week's worth of cardio after walking into one spider web. The first five days after the weekend are always the toughest, aren't they? There's no way that everybody has been kung fu fighting. Just no way. Some of you got that. Two silkworms were in a race. It ended in a tie. Just some thoughts to ponder. Amen. This morning we're going to start off in Philippians chapter 2. Let's read verse 13. Skip down to verse 13. Just one verse to start us off this morning. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, I want to spend our time this morning considering those last three words of that verse, his good pleasure. What does that truly mean? You know, what is God's good pleasure? I'm sure being in church, we've heard that phrase before, but what is God's good pleasure? Is it good for us or is it only good for him? So I believe to best answer that question, we need to look ahead. We need to look to the future. Turn your Bibles to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 4. Right? Genesis, Exodus, and Revelation, right? Book of Revelation, chapter 4. We're going to start reading right at verse 1. I want you to pay close attention to the words that the Apostle John used when he received this revelation of Jesus Christ, this revelation of heaven. He said, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and like a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, 
Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will, by your good pleasure, they exist and were created. So here we are given a glimpse of God's throne room in heaven. And we need to understand the timeline here. Revelation chapter 4 begins with the rapture of the church. This signifies the end of the church age. So we know this. Uh, again, I said pay close attention to the wording. In chapters 2 and 3, they give us the seven letters written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Those seven letters line up perfectly with the seven dispensations of the church age. The church age began at Christ's uh, ascension into heaven, and it will come to an end at the rapture of the church. And if you study church history, you'll see that there's seven distinct dispensations, seven distinct periods, and they line up perfectly with those seven letters. So this says, John says, and uh, looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. He's talking about right after the church age. So that term, come up here, that is not just a, an invitation or a command for the Apostle John. It's a command for the entire church body. That is Jesus signifying, it's time to go and gather up my church, my bride, the body of born-again believers. That will happen at the rapture when Jesus comes and he takes us home. So now that we understand the timeline... Now we, we need to understand what we are seeing here in, in God's great throne room. And here we see God seated on his great throne, right? That's the first picture that we're, that we're given here, and one sat on the throne. We see him shining bright white like a jasper stone, and also there's a, a fiery red uh, uh, a glare also like a sardius stone, it says. And his throne is decorated, it says, by a rainbow that goes completely around it. What's completely round? A full circle, right? And it says it's emerald in color. So this emerald green rainbow completely circles the throne of God. What does that signify? What is that symbolic of? That is symbolic of how God sees all things. Amen? Here on earth, we only have a partial view of things. And that's why we only see how much of the rainbow? Half, right? We only see half a rainbow because we don't see all things. God sees all things. And that is why that's significant to see that full rainbow around the throne of God. Now, it also tells us that seated around the throne of God are 24 lesser thrones, and on those thrones are seated 24 elders. 
So these 24 elders, the Bible describes and says that they are um, they're clothed with white robes. They have crowns of gold on their heads. And they're seated around the throne of God. So who are these 24 elders? Well, in the Bible, we need to understand the term elder is only used describing man, never angels. So we know that these elders are mankind. They're not angels, for sure. The Bible also tells us that only born-again believers are given white robes, glorified in heaven, crowned, and seated upon thrones. So these 24 elders are symbolic and represent the entire body of believers. And here's why. We have to go back to the Old Testament. In 1 Chronicles chapter 24, God outlines in that chapter how King David, he had to divide and he had to appoint 24 courses or 24 divisions of priests that would represent the entire priesthood. Now, why did David have to do this? Well, because the number of priests had grown to such a large number that it was impossible for all of them to make their required trip to Jerusalem every year. So that impossibility made this uh, uh, division uh, a requirement. So David had to divide up these, these priests, this body of priests, into 24 divisions that represented the entire body of priests. And we see this same symbolism here in Revelation chapter 4. The number 24, numbers in the Bible are very significant. They're not, um, you know, just coincidence. Numbers are very symbolic. The number 24 happens to represent the number of redeemed. Amen? The number of redeemed. God is using these 24 elders to represent the entire body of believers. They represent the entire priesthood of believers. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Listen to the language that God uses here. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, listen to what he says, and has made us kings. What do kings sit on? Thrones. And has made us priests. To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And he has made us kings and priests to his God. So who are these 24 elders? Those 24 elders are you and me. They are the rapture church, the bride of Christ. They represent all born again believers. Amen? So... Let's go back to our, our text in, in Revelation chapter 4. Skip down to verse 6. Now it says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. Now, I want us to understand, and, and don't get tied up with that translation of the word creatures. What comes to mind when we hear that word? Like some type of animalistic being, right? A creature. Scary monster. 
But that word creature just literally means a created being. So what are we seeing here? What, what is before the throne of God? It's simply angels. Created beings, angels. Now, as we, as we continue to read, it says in verse 7, the first living uh, creature, the first angel, was like a lion. The second angel was like a calf. The third was, uh, had the face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, the four angels, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. Now, God mentions that twice. That they're full of eyes within, around, all around. And what is that symbolic of? That they see all things. Amen? Just like God. Because they are seated with God, they have that perfect view. And they can see all things just like God sees all things. Amen? So, keep in mind, heaven is a spiritual place. It's not physical. So, John, the Bible says, John was caught up in the spirit, and he was given this revelation of Christ, this revelation of of God's home, heaven, and it's a spiritual place. So, John had to try to describe this spiritual place with physical words. So we have to make sure we understand that. So when it says they were covered with eyes, it didn't literally have eyes all over the place. It meant that they could see all things. Amen? And it says, And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, if we go back to the book of Ezekiel and we look at this description of these angels— and compare that to the description of the angels that we read about in the book of Ezekiel, we come to the conclusion, we understand that these angels are cherubims, a special order of angels, amen? And cherubims are always before the throne of God. It's kind of like God's inner circle of angels. So let's pick up, uh, let's go to verse 9. It says, Whenever the angels give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will, your good pleasure, they exist and were created. Now, in verse 11, that first word, you, in the Greek is singular, and it means you only. It means holy, separated. You only, God, are worthy, O Lord. You created all things. Not much room there for evolution, is there? What does all mean? All means all, and that's all that all means. And if God created all things, there is absolutely no room for evolution. And speaking of evolution, I don't know about you, but I've always felt sorry for those poor monkeys. Amen? Because of this false theory. I can just hear them now, you know, the mama monkey telling her her baby monkey, look, they're blaming us for their mess. They certainly didn't come from us. We don't act like that. Amen? Just a thought. But I want you to take note also in verses 10 and 11 of who's talking. Amen? Who's talking? 
It's the 24 elders. It says, as soon as the, uh, when the, when the angels give honor and thanks, the 24 elders, they fall down before him and worship him, and they say, you are worthy, O Lord. I point this out because this, verse 11, these are the first recorded words of mankind in heaven. Amen? First recorded words of mankind in heaven right here in in Revelation chapter 4. And it says, And by your will, by your good pleasure, they exist and were created. We need to understand that this is the very purpose of creation. This is the very reason for our existence. It is because of God's good pleasure that all things, including you and I, were created. Amen? For God's good pleasure. Now, I want us to think about that for a moment. Let's, let's consider God's good pleasure. No, you know, I've, I've heard people comment on this. God is not on some ego trip. Amen? Understand that. We can't get offended by, the, by this wording, God's good pleasure. Too many have the wrong attitude, and too many think that Sunday is for his good pleasure. The other six days are for our good pleasure, amen? That's how we uh, tend to live sometimes. But Ephesians chapter 1, skipping down to verse 4. Just as he chose us in Christ... Before the foundation of the world, just as God the Father chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, before creation even occurred, it says that God chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's how he chose us, in love having predestined us to to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to what? The good pleasure of his will. Do you see it there? God has chosen us out of pure, unconditional love. Again, we can't let this, you know, God's good pleasure kind of picket our pride pick at our ego, pick at our flesh. You see, none of those things, our pride, our ego, our flesh, they don't like to give up their authority over us, do they? To anyone, especially God. So we have to be very careful that 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 phrase doesn't bother us. We have to understand what God's good pleasure truly is. And God's good pleasure, simply put, to break it down to the most basic definition, God's good pleasure is to have a close and intimate relationship with us. Amen? That is his heart's desire. You think about the Bible. The entire Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation is God calling us and drawing us and redeeming us and saving us and conforming us front to back. God's will, his heart's desire, his good pleasure 
is to have fellowship with us, is to have a close relationship with us. Amen? And when we understand what God's good pleasure truly is, boy, it makes a whole new perspective, doesn't it? Go all the way back to creation. Think about that. Go all the way back to creation. Creation occurred in six days. And after every single day of creation, how did God end it? With one phrase, and it was good, right? It was good. Now, we have to understand, it was good for who? Was it good for God? Absolutely not. It was good for us. Amen? After every single day that God made his creation, he said, it is good. I don't know about you, but I can almost see God as he, he created all those sweet and delicious plums and, and peaches and mangoes. And he'd say, you know, this is going to be so good for them. I can hardly wait for them to, to eat it and to taste it and to see for themselves just how good it is. And then on man's first day of existence, what did God do? God came down, and the Bible says he visited with Adam. Why? To get to know him. To show up, uh, to share with him, to, to fellowship, and just spend time with him. This is the purpose when God refers to us as his bride. And he, our bridegroom. Think about that. Did you ever wonder why God used that language? We are his bride. Why? Because of that close relationship. I have a bride. I got a license for her and everything. Amen. But I didn't marry her for her to glorify me. You know, when I come home, you know, she doesn't meet me at the door and say, bless you, my loving husband. Praise you, my mighty uh, uh, man. Amen. And I'm glad I didn't marry her for that reason, because it never happens. <laughs> Amen. I'd be disappointed. But no, she does, you know, she does glorify me. Amen. Our wives, they do glorify us. And I also didn't marry her to serve me because that wouldn't go over too well either. Amen. But she does serve me in all the things that she does. The reason I married her was out of love, to have that, that close and intimate relationship. Amen. Now, we also think God also puts us into another category. Not only are we his bride, but the Lord tells us that he is our father and we are his what? Are his children. Amen. Again, to illustrate that, that relationship that he desires to have for us. Now, I have three children of my own, but I didn't have them to serve me. You know, Debbie and I, we didn't sit around and say, you know, when the kids get older, they can cut the grass and trim the bushes and vacuum the floor and do all the dishes, right? Don't we all wish as parents, amen? But they do serve us, our children, they do serve us, amen? And as a dad, you know, my life is transformed when I look at them and I look in, into their faces and into their eyes. Especially, you know, I think back of those times when, when they were little guys and they had a raging fever. And you drop to my knees and I pray and I say, Lord, you know, give me their fever. 
Let me suffer in their place. You know, I think every parent, every dad, every mom has, has prayed that prayer before. So we need to understand that we were created for God's good pleasure. And that shouldn't offend us if we understand what that is. His pleasure is to look in our faces. His pleasure is to look in our eyes and see himself. We were created in his image. Amen. He's a proud papa. He's a proud daddy, just like we are of our children. And he wants us to hear us cry out, Abba, Father. Abba means daddy. That close, intimate relationship. It's his unconditional love that searches us out. It's his tender heart and his tender hands that wipe away all of our tears. That is his desire. That is God's good pleasure. Amen. You know, even in his commandments, a lot of times, those commandments are hard for us to take, aren't they? A lot of do this is and don't do that's. But we need to understand when God says don't do this or don't do that, he's saying don't get hurt. Amen? And it's out of pure love. Just like we see our, our little one reach up to, you know, towards the top of the stove when the stove's on. What do we say? Don't, don't touch that. Why? Don't get hurt. And that's the same thing in God's commandments. He's telling us when he says don't, he's saying I love you. Don't get hurt. And we see that in even all the commandments, we see our benefits. Jesus said the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Why did Jesus say that was the first and greatest commandment? Think about it. Because that's what God wants from us. That is his heart's desire, for us to love him. He wants our love, our heart, our fellowship. That's why he says the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our being. That's his heart's desire. We think about Jesus nailed upon that old rugged cross. And he looked down upon us. He looked into our face. And he prayed, he said, Lord... Give me their sins. Give me their punishment. And he took both of them. 